Let me add my welcome to Pastor Ron. What a joy and a privilege it is to be together to worship this Monday, Thursday evening. And if you've got a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 32. You know, when we come together on Monday, Thursday, we do so by looking back. We look back to the night that Jesus gathered with His disciples in the upper room where they shared a meal together as part of the Passover celebration. And at that Passover meal, Jesus and His disciples were also looking back. They were remembering the Lord's salvation as He had rescued the Israelite people from their Egyptian slavery some 1,500 years earlier. They remembered the blood of innocent lambs that had been shed And how that blood applied to the doorway of their houses had caused the judgment of God to pass over them. It was a story that had been remembered and rejoiced at every Passover since. And yet that night, in that upper room, the Passover Lamb of God was in their midst. The very one for whom that Passover meal had ultimately pointed to was about to be sacrificed. His innocent blood was to be shed for the forgiveness of sin once and for all. His body was to be broken so that all who put their faith in Him might be made whole. But the disciples did not see it. We know that because Luke tells us that after supper, the disciples got into an argument. They were arguing about which of them was the greatest disciple. That's like a group of failing students arguing which of them is the smartest. You see, these disciples were trying to establish a pecking order to see who should serve and who should be served. Rather than rebuke them all, Jesus does the unthinkable and He serves them all. He does that in an unforgettable act of foot washing. And this act of humility shows them and it shows us that greatness is found in serving. That glory is found in sacrifice. It's in giving your rights, your resources, even your life away so that others might flourish. Jesus sums up this new command or mandate in John thirteen thirty four: Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is saying here, it's not enough to love your neighbor as you love yourself. You must love one another as I love you. Now I know in my own heart how easy it is to love those who are like me. To love those who look like me or think like me or live like me. It takes no real effort. It it seems quite natural. But, But when that command involves loving someone who is not like me, I stumble. I feel the discomfort of learning how to love that person and maybe more importantly, how to be loved by that person. You may be tempted to say, I don't think I could love that way. It it seems too costly. What Paul is going to show us in our text tonight is that it is too costly to not love that way. Hear now God's holy word from 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. 
For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, because this is Your Word, we need Your help to rightly divine that Word. And more than that, we need Your help to understand and apply this Word to not only our communion practices, not only to our worship practices, but to our very lives. And so we ask You to do that for the sake of Christ. Amen. Well, I grew up in a home where table manners were a big deal. I'm guessing maybe that was the case in your home as well. There were certain behaviors that you exhibited before, during, and after the meal that were considered to be good table manners. Now these table manners were caught by watching, taught by listening, and reinforced by doing all throughout our childhood. I thought of some of those that I heard frequently in my house. Perhaps these will sound familiar. The napkin goes in your lap. Your shirt is not a napkin. (laughs) Don't talk with food in your mouth. Close your mouth when you chew. Keep your elbows off the table. Wait to eat until all have been served and leave enough food for everyone else. Now those last two were particularly difficult for us to honor on the nights that my mom made spaghetti and pot roast or chicken pie. If it had been up to me, there would have been nothing left for the rest of my family on those nights. For three growing boys who were always hungry, these rules, these manners were needed. They reminded us that we were in a family and that we must think of others and not just ourselves. And that's certainly true in the family of God, isn't it? There is a call upon our lives to love and serve one another because Christ has done the same for us. And when we embrace that call, we are willing to serve in the nursery, especially on Easter, so that all of our children 
are cared for while their parents are able to worship the Lord. We are willing to forego talking to our friends on a Sunday morning so that we might talk to those who are visiting and welcome them and care for them. It means that we are willing to arrive at the church early on Sunday morning so we can make coffee for those who need caffeine. It means we are willing even to park in one of the Randolph College parking lots so that those who perhaps are visiting or need extra assistance can park closer to the church. We do all these things not to somehow deserve Christ's blessing or some special favor or merit. Of course, we don't do that. We do it out of an awareness of and gratitude for the love that Christ has for us. That's the model. That's the calling. But there are times when the cost of loving like that is hard. It's hard because our love of self is so great. Our desire to be comfortable, our desire to be safe, or our desire to be right is often more important than loving one another. And it doesn't just cause us to miss out on being a blessing to that brother or sister in Christ. It can actually cause harm to the witness of the church in the community. Something like that was happening in the young church that Paul had planted in Corinth. After getting the church established in about 18 months, Paul left the church in very capable hands and moved on to the next city to plant a church. He had only been gone about three years before reports began to come in about the sad state of affairs in the church of Corinth. Now, planting a thriving church in Corinth was no small task. Corinth was a very cosmopolitan city. It was smart and savvy and it was extremely prosperous. It was sort of the modern day New York City. And like New York City, people moved to Corinth to make it big, to make a name for themselves. And when they made their fortunes, they moved on. So for many people, Corinth was seen as a commodity to be used, to be used for personal gain and selfish ambition and self-indulgence as well as a stage to show it all off. There was little thought for serving or caring for others unless it helped you succeed. As a result, the gospel was slow to take root in people's lives there. People were slow to put off the old selves and worldly desires and to put on the new self and godly desires. There was a heartbreaking failure in the church to love one another as Christ had loved. The absence of such love started causing divisions and factions in the church. It showed up in almost every aspect of church life, including the Lord's Supper. And so Paul responds to this crisis by exposing what we might call ungodly table manners. And then secondly, he promotes godly table manners. Let's look first at the ungodly table manners. It was the practice of the early church to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of a meal together. In fact, this meal had been associated with the love feast that Jude refers to in his letter. This meal was meant to be enjoyed together as a sign of their fellowship in Christ. The rich often provided much of the food since they had most of the resources. And as such, they would serve themselves first. They took the choicest foods and wines in whatever quantities they wanted. And what's more, they didn't wait for everyone else to be served. Rather, they ate when they were ready, even if not everyone was present. And so by the time the poor and the widows arrived for the meal, there was nothing left. 
There wasn't even bread or wine to celebrate the Lord's Supper. They went away hungry from what should have been a delicious meal. A meal signifying their oneness in Christ. A meal that reminded them of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. They also went away humiliated because they had been left out. They had been despised by the very ones who should have embraced them as a family. It was as if they were invisible. You know, this is why we ask you to hold on to the bread and the cup until all have been served when we celebrate communion together. We do this as a visible reminder that we are one in Christ. We are a family and family waits to eat together until all have been served. Is it any wonder why Paul was so upset by this behavior? He goes so far as to say in verse 20 that when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you are eating. He's saying, don't think for a second that what you are doing can be called the Lord's Supper. It's not the Lord and His sacrifice that you are honoring, and it is not the church that you are communing with. Paul even goes so far as to say in verse 17 that when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. He's saying that when they gather together, their sinful actions bring out the worst in people. This begs the question, can we come to worship? Can we even come to the Lord's table and it not be for the better, but for the worse? Is it possible that our worship can cause more harm than good? Well, I suppose it can if we have the mindset that what matters most to us is what we like. It can if our preferences are the standard by which we judge the value of a worship service. And if not dealt with, these unmet preferences can turn into complaining and grumbling and even a refusal to participate in worship. And when that happens our desires, our preferences, they now have become the object of worship rather than God. May God deliver us from such a mindset. Our worship can also cause more harm than good if we are just going through the motions. We may be performing the outer actions of worship, but our hearts and minds remain unchanged and unengaged. This, of course, has the appearance of worship, but it lacks the heart of worship And while we may think we are getting away with our lip service, don't you know that Jesus is really good at reading not only our lips, but our hearts. He quotes Isaiah in Matthew 15, 8, that this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. You see, God is not interested in lip-honoring worship, but heart-rendering service to Him. May God deliver us from such a mindset. Our worship can also cause more harm than good if in taking the Lord's Supper we refuse to forgive those who sinned against us or we refuse to repent of sin against another. On the one hand, when we refuse to forgive, we judge the sin of others as being greater than our own. Their sin against us is greater than our sin against the Lord, we might say. Jesus reminds us just how great our sin is when He tells the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. One servant, you remember, is forgiven a debt of 10,000 talents, but then refuses to forgive another servant who owes a microscopic 100 denarii. 
the master in the parable says to the unforgiving servant, I forgave you all that debt. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? How easily we forget our debt of sin to God is enormous. It cannot be paid back. Yet we have been forgiven it all. How much more so should we forgive others? And yet on the other hand, when we refuse to repent of our sin, we fail to judge our sin at all. Whereas 1 John 1.10 states, If we say we have not sinned, we make Him, that is God, a liar. And His Word is not in us. When's the last time you called God a liar? Well, like me, you've probably never uttered those words. But when we refuse to acknowledge our sin as sin, that's exactly what we're doing. Both the unwillingness to forgive and the refusal to repent show a lack of belief in the gospel. They ignore the cost that was paid for our sin. Both nullify the cross of Christ. Both diminish the Lord's Supper. May God deliver us from such a mindset. Well, if that's how our gathering can cause more harm than good, how might our gathering do more good than harm? What are the godly table manners that Paul promotes for partaking of the Lord's Supper? Well, Paul begins by reminding the Corinthian church of Jesus' purposes for the Lord's Supper in verses uh, 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Now, if that wording sounds familiar to you, it's because that's the same wording we use when we celebrate communion together. We speak these same words every single time, and we do that to remind us of what Jesus did and what we are to do in response. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. You see, our partaking of the supper together is a proclamation. Only it's not a stating of facts. It is a gospel or good news message that is going forth. It is spreading out. It is breaking out into the world. It is the kind of proclamation that would be given ahead of a king's victorious return from battle. Their enemy had been defeated. The kingdom was once again secure. This good news would have been received by great shouts of joy. Much like what we saw in Times Square after the end of World War II. The Lord's Supper is that gospel proclamation. It is that good news that through Christ's death on the cross, our sins have been forgiven. Our enemy has been defeated. We have been set free to live in ongoing fellowship with Christ and with one another. And so when we partake of the Lord's Supper together, we are in fact preaching the gospel to ourselves and to one another. We are reminding ourselves not just of the finished work of Christ, but the finishing work that He is doing in our lives. 
That seems to resonate with what Paul says in verse 28. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. As we come to the table, we are examining. We are testing our understanding of the Gospel. Do we believe in the depth and severity of our sin and the judgment levied against us? Do we believe that the only way of escape is through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ? Do we believe that Christ did in fact pay the debt our sin owed in full? And do we believe that we are now free from the bondage of sin and free to love God and the things and people of God? As we examine ourselves, two attitudes emerge. The first is humility. We are quick to realize that we are unworthy partakers of the Lord's Supper. That we do not deserve a place at His table. But Christ reminds us that He has made us worthy through His death and resurrection. He has secured our place at the table. He has given us a seat at His banqueting table where we may feast with our family. The second attitude that emerges is sobriety. This is in contrast to the drunken Corinthian behavior who failed to understand the Lord's Supper. They failed to grasp and discern its implication for the church. Paul says in verse 29, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. To discern the body is to partake of the supper, discerning both the fellowship that we have with Christ and the fellowship that we have with His body the church. And so if you have grieved a brother or sister in Christ or injured them in your speech, go to them and be reconciled. If you are harboring a grudge towards someone who has slighted you, forgive them in Jesus' name. Are there needs in the church body that you should meet? Don't wait for someone to ask. Step in and meet them. We are to love this body as Christ loved us. Christ has given us this supper as a blessed gift to remind us of our fellowship with Him and one another. Let us receive it with humility and gratitude. Let it bring us to worship and praise. And let it also receive it with sobriety and discern our responsibility to love and serve the church as Christ has done so for us. Oh, may God give us the grace to be that kind of people. And so bring honor and glory to His name. Let us pray. Father, we do pray for that kind of grace to be leveraged in our lives so that we can be empowered to love as You have loved us. That we might serve as You have served us. That we might make a a name for Yourself and not a name for ourselves. So God, we ask that You might bless this Word. Put those seeds deep into our hearts and minds that we may meditate on it, particularly as we come to the Lord's table this evening. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.